0: You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. And many people have asked me, did you always want to be the Surgeon General? And i tell them over and over again, you can't be, but you can't see. And I never seen a doctor until I was in college. So how could I want to be
1: the Surgeon General? Former U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Joyce Lynn Elders, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. It's Black History Month, and each week this month, I'm featuring an interview from my archive with a prominent African-American who's made a positive contribution. Joyce Lynn Elders was the oldest child of Arkansas sharecroppers, born in 1933. But through a series of remarkable happenstance, she ended up going to medical school and becoming a pediatrician. When Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas, he appointed Elders to be director of the state's Department of Health, she was the first African-American to hold that position. And then when Mr. Clinton became president in January 1993, he chose Dr. Elders to be the U.S. Surgeon General, and she was the first African-American to hold that position. But almost from the beginning, Dr. Elders' bluntness and forthright way of speaking offended some people and got her into hot water. She was anything but politically correct. And by the end of 1994, the president was forced to ask for her resignation. I met her in 1996 when she wrote a memoir. Now, a quick note about the audio quality of this interview, which isn't up to my usual standards. The tape it's on is, of course, almost 26 years old, and it seems not to have held up quite as well as others in my collection. But I thought this was an important interview that you needed to hear. So here now, from 1996, Dr. Joyce Lynn Elders ever
2: in your life think there would come a time when you would be writing and publishing and going on a tour to promote
0: an autobiography? No. I never even... It never even occurred to me. I guess so many good things that's happened in my life are really things that I didn't plan for.
2: What a story this is. How did you know even where to begin? Did you, did
0: you just think, well, will start the day I'm born and just take it from there? Or, or how, did you, how did you start? Well... Uh, I really, I wrote it with uh, Dr. David Shanoff, so I really had a writer to help me, and I did not do it alone. I did a lot of talking, he did a lot of writing, I did a lot of editing, and I think he did a wonderful job of making it sound just like me. This book feels like me.
2: I must say I've interviewed a, a pretty fair share of authors over the years who have written memoirs, autobiographies, and a pretty A fair number of them tell me that once they read the final thing, between the the two covers, and they read
0: a page after page, they thought, this like it happened to somebody else. No, this was a very painful book, at least part of it, for me to do. For me, you know, the part that everybody knows about me, that wasn't painful, that was already out there. But the part that people didn't know about me, my early upbringing, the poverty, the desolation, the emptiness, uh those were things that uh perhaps made me who I am and those are the things that I want people to know about me. So they can begin to understand uh why I feel the way I feel about many of the things that are happening to the young people in our society. Were there times spent in the writing
2: of this book that maybe the the pain started to, to get to you and you said, no, no, I don't I don't think I can do this.
0: There were times during that book when I I really cried. You know, I couldn't go back and talk about my family and talk about uh, some of that because it was literally too painful. You know, parts of the times when my brother had appendicitis and was so sick, and he could not be put in a hospital; it was just a drain. Put in, you know, the times when my sisters and brothers would be working so hard picking cotton and doing things to try just for the family to survive or to get money. For me to go, to go to college. And, you know, all of those were very painful experiences for me to recall. How we used to treat our wounds, severe, serious wounds, with coal oil. You know, we would just pour it over and, you know, in the cold winters when my mom would have a little baby and she would be trying to wash diapers and they'd freeze before they would even get on the line.
2: Oh, you were the oldest of... Eight. I was the oldest of eight So you were, kind of, you were kind of a mom, yes. uh, mom's chief assistant.
0: Uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, I really felt like I had seven children. <laughs>
2: How much age difference is there between you and the youngest?
0: Oh, there is almost 20 years difference between myself and my younger brother. I was in college my youngest brother was born. Wow. How soon did you know you wanted to be a doctor? I didn't know I wanted to be a doctor until I was a sophomore in college when I met a Dr. Edith Irby Jones, she was the first white woman to attend the University of Arkansas Medical School, and she gave a talk to our college uh, uh, student body. And while she talked, she talked about the differences in the high road and the low. And after listening to her, all I could want to be is just like her. And me people have asked me, "But did you always want to be the Surgeon General? And I've told them over and over again, you can't be but you can't see, and I'd never seen a doctor until I was in college. So how could I want to be the Surgeon General?
2: I'm, I'm guessing that up until that point, you may not have ever even heard of the Surgeon General.
0: I had never heard of a Surgeon General. I didn't even know. You see, we didn't have electricity, We didn't have running water. We didn't. We had outdoor privy. So consequently, we didn't have radio. Say nothing of TV.
2: And no uh, cigarette packs with that little warning on the side either.
0: And no cigarette packs with that little warning on the side. There are very few members of my family ever smoked, but it was probably because if they did smoke, they would have rolled their own. My mom and, uh, dad never smoked, but, uh, we probably just didn't have the money to, to buy it. Tobacco. Wow.
2: I've, I've heard some people say sometimes that naivete is helpful because if you had known at the outset, how difficult leading up to medical school and getting in and succeeding was it, uh, was going, was supposed to be. You might have said, I can't do that. As a lot of people say, I can't do that. But if you don't know how hard it's supposed to be.
0: You know, there, I never thought of it in that sense. To me, it may really have a point. I, you know, I was just always just going ahead, doing absolutely the very best I can, always trying to get to the next rung on the ladder never knowing what it was going to bring and when it would get there and I'd have enough energy to go to the next keep reaching up and so you may be right if i had thought of the end looking from the bottom of the pit up i might have never even tried to burn.
2: any physician has to face has to face pain though on a day other people's pain on a daily basis on the loss yeah. you you explain so poignantly in your book there's there was one terrible evening when Death was everywhere on the pediatric you, ward.
0: You know, that's true. And I'll never, you can never forget that. That evening we lost five children between 5 o'clock p.m. and the next, by 3 a.m. the next morning. And, you know, as we were just taking care of one, another child would die. And we'd have to run over and I'd have someone pounding on one part while we were trying to put a tube in the next. You know, and two of the children, we didn't even... One had had an appendectomy, and the other one had had, uh, was li- in for something wrong with the abdomen, but nothing that we thought would make them die. And so, and, and one child was a child with leukemia. Uh, so, you know, that one, it, we weren't expecting her to die that night, but, you know, we knew back then we didn't have the kind of therapy that we have today. And there was two babies, and I went and went, and that morning, about three, about five o'clock in the morning, the nurse, was there with me and we was right, all right in our notes. And she asked me, she said, Dr. Elders, she, she said something about it. it was a terrible night. She said, I can get you a cup of coffee. And I just bawled. I couldn't, I just couldn't hold it any longer. And I was sitting right out there at the nursing station and all. And so we, they took me back to the back room and we, you know, we, but you know, that was, I felt so happy. And I knew all of these parents were so dependent on me to take care of their children and, and and I lost it but you know even parents was there patting me on the shoulder reassuring me and I should have been reassuring them
1: after this short break Dr. Joycelyn Elders sets the record straight what did she say what didn't she say Back to my 1996 interview with Dr. Joyce Lynn Elders.
2: So, you know, that's what a doctor has to do. You have to set aside the normal human emotions of empathy and sympathy and, and feeling. Because if you let every death get to you, any doctor's death, say death, if you let yes. every death oh, to yes. get to you, you'll be a bastard case.
0: Well, you know, that's true. And then after that night, you know, but you know, I, I was, I, you know, because I had good nurses, good people around, I was able to recover, go on, and, and really feel that. I had done the very best that I knew how.
2: Is it things like that that make you, that inspire you to go on to the, the more political positions you've had, where you're in a position to do something to help children who may be in positions like that in the future?
0: Well, you know, I'm sure you know, everything that happened to us, all of our experiences make us into who we are. But I think it was, you know, when I was on the university faculty, I was just really concerned about being the best professor there was in that medical school. Then when I was asked to be the health director, and the responsibility not for the individual child was mine, but the responsibility of the health for everybody in that state was mine. And as I was going around this state, seeing all of the poverty, all of the health problems, everything that was going on, you know, I suddenly felt that what I had been doing at the medical school was almost nothing. And I felt that I was in a hurry. I had to go out and make a difference for the bright young people of America and give them a chance to be the best that they could be. There is a sense of urgency on many pages of this book. Well, you know, I felt and feel a sense of urgency about the things that I was about. And I guess this was why you know, people were talking to me about what was politically correct or incorrect. Well, I didn't have time to be politically correct. I had to do what we needed to do now. We were wasting too many of our bright young people, having them to grow up in poverty, ignorance and enslavement. And that's what I wanted the American people to know. It strikes me that
2: you feel that that with that sense of urgency that if the truth needs to be told because of that sense of urgency, you don't have time to dance around, uh, you know, what, uh, what may offend this senator or what's
0: going to offend this little group over here. Maybe we shouldn't phrase it question that way because somebody might get upset about it. I wanted to phrase it such that everybody could understand. And you're right. I didn't feel, I didn't feel I had time to go and try and spend all my time word hawking and word engineering that I had to Get on about the business at hand of trying to save the children. But you're not, you weren't, you were not you not the first Surgeon General to make controversial statements. I think if you're going to be a Surgeon General, and if you're going to do your jobs, going to do what the job is to be about, you have to take on the controversial issues because those are often the issues that are destroying our country. Well, I mean, if I go to my personal
2: physician and he says, Hey, Bill, <laughs> you're getting off a tubby. You're going to have to lose some weight. And you're going to have to do this, do this, do this. I
0: appreciate him for telling me the truth. That's right. Oh, Uh, absolutely. Should should we not expect the same from our Surgeon General? I feel that, you know, we often feel as politicians, you know, we can take the facts and use the pieces of the facts that we want to use. When you are the doctor or the Surgeon General, you're supposed to take all of the scientific data and use it to make the best possible decision you can for your patients or the, the people of the country.
2: Now, uh, you've also used the, 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 the form, the bully pulpit, as it were, of your book to, to set some records straight. And we will help you
0: in that regard here. Did you say, let's legalize drugs? I never said, let's legalize drugs. I said I thought we should study the issue. Did you say, let's teach kids how to masturbate in school? But nobody needs to teach kids how to masturbate. God taught us how to masturbate. I said we should stop lying to children, hair on their hands. They'll go blind or they'll go crazy. And we should be honest with children.
2: I, I, I must feel some, I, I must confess you, I feel some degree of guilt as a duly authorized member of the news media. And we just report these little snippets, these little sound bites. We take a remark that you may mention to a psychiatrist at a conference and we say,
0: Whoa, look what she said. And it may not have been what she said at all. Yes, that's right. The psychiatrist asked me the question about it and asked if we should be teaching uh, you know, children are teaching about this issue. It was not how-to. Nobody needs a how-to
1: course.
0: <laughs> all people have to do is go back and think about themselves. Nobody taught them how-to. But you were a convenient lightning rod. I, I well, I always said that I didn't mind being the lightning rod if all of the people out there would be the thunder behind you.
2: You are, it, it, it is remarkable how, uh, how, the lack of bitterness in your voice, or in your in your writing, the, the lack of rancor, the lack of any kind of regret for anything
0: that you've said or done or has happened to you. You know, I don't have any regret about anything I've said because I really, I don't know of anything I said that was not true. If I lied about anything, I do the that. I don't want to ever lie to the American people about anything. As far as bitterness, I don't feel bitter. I have no bitterness. Bill Clinton gave me the opportunity to be the health director for the state of Arkansas. I was president of the health directors for the nation. And he gave me the opportunity to be the Surgeon General. And why should I feel bitter? If he felt that I was not doing the job that he wanted done, like he wanted it done, well then, as the president, he was supposed to ask them to resign.
2: Dude, it's got to a, a shock, I mean, again, Oh, no, right, I'm not it wasn't a shock. Yeah, you you do write very poignantly. I, I I pardon the pun. I felt your pain. And <laughs> then in, in, in this chapter, when you when you recount the whole, the whole it's it's almost Kafka esque how this happened to you.
0: Yes, it was very quick. You know, I always tell people, you know, it's a matter of whether you want to bleed to death, one drop at a time, or whether you just want to have your neck chopped off, and and. Uh, and, and and it's over and done with in a second. Mine was very quick, and that's the way I wanted.
2: You're still driving down the road when your head is
0: on the road. Somewhere. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I, I, I probably should have had a little more insight, but you know, I really didn't know this was coming until it was over.
2: I, I, I tend to identify with you because I'm not a very political person here. I mean, I, I've been fired from jobs, and I was the last to know because yes. I didn't think. I was just doing my job. And you sound like a concept around doing the job, and, and you, suddenly you look up, and everybody's around you with, with uh, you know knives and hatchets in their hands thinking, why did you say that?
0: That's exactly how
2: I felt. It, it's got to come as kind of a shock, not just when you realize you're about to be fired, but to, to realize
0: that you told the truth and you've offended somebody, and now they want your hand for it. That's right. Well, you know, I... When other people were talking to me about it, when the secretary talked to me about it, or when Miss Badetta talked to me about it, I didn't even really think twice about it. You know, I felt I felt well, let let I'll talk with the president, and so I'm not going to resign till I talk with the president. Well, when I heard the president telling me he my resignation, you know, it was I was really taken aback. But you know, there was no, he said, he kept saying, "I'm sorry, but this has to be done." Well, you know, the only thing that I could say at that point. So thank you, Mr. President. I won't
2: get it this way, it's not for you. What else would Rush Limbaugh have to talk about for the last four years? (laughs) Oh, you're absolutely right. (laughs) i (laughs) have got to give you some satisfaction. Absolutely.
1: Dr. Joyce Lynn Elders is 88 now, and she is a professor emeritus at the University of Arkansas. And you can find easy Amazon links to Dr. Joyce Lynn Elder's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure and check out my interview from the late 80s with another prominent African-American surgeon, Dr. Ben Carson. The thing that really brought it into focus was the Bender twins, because that's when people started
2: saying, Isn't that the same guy? Isn't that the guy who did this? Isn't that the guy? And all of a sudden... Uh, This tag of miracle worker and all these things started being applied to me, which, of course, is absolutely not true. There's no way that I can work a miracle.
1: And listen to my 1997 interview with another member of the Bill Clinton cabinet, former labor secretary Robert Reich.
2: When I was a public official not too long ago, I had to watch my words. I mean, I got in trouble even for what I said. When I talked about corporate welfare...
1: It was like a bomb went off. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my conversation with a man who twice ran for president of the United States, but came up just short each time, my 1993 interview with former Colorado Senator Gary Hart. I would have been more outspoken, I think, even than I was. My personality is not a uh, divisive one. But I think my ideas were and were meant to be, and I I would probably have been even more outspoken in my presentation of those ideas. That's next time on now I've heard everything. I'm Bill Thompson.